Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Getting people to listen is the first step you know in persuading them to take an action. And I don't care if that action is adopt your idea, give you a new role, give you a brand new position, or hire you as a client, or hire you as the most brilliant speech person in the entire world. It's getting them to take action. And that's true regardless what you're doing. So what we used to think about is vice, we're going to find from our guest today, doesn't work so well today. So the whole adage has changed. So what do you need to do? How do you improve your ability to communicate and persuade, even if you don't like speaking in public? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I think you're going to find it, as always, highly practical, hugely relevant, and everybody can improve on this one. I don't care where you stand. So my guest today is Gabe Zickerman. Gabe is an entrepreneur, author, investor, and leader whose books, speeches, and workshops focus on gamification and behavioral design. All right. So companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Amazon have adopted his theories and practices and leading to significant revenue over time. So he's a frequent keynote speaker and a frequent speaking coach and having helped hundreds of successful entrepreneurs, executives, and celebrities communicate. His new book is called The AHA Method, Communicating Powerfully in a Time of Distraction. And you can learn more at his website, Gabe Zickerman, G-A-B-E-Z-I-C-H-E-R-M-A-N-N.com. Gabe, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Wanda. It's pleasure. It's a pleasure. And it's interesting that you do you do so many different things. It's fascinating that <sighs> this thing about communication is a bit of your passion. Well, I, to be honest with you, I've always been chatty. Okay. So if you go back, the, everyone who's known me since I was a very young child, we're always like, uh, wow, that's a talkative human being. And so I, you know, Communicate, communication and particularly, you know, like getting up in front of people, it's it's always come relatively naturally to me. But becoming somebody who could turn that into a career, you know, where it's on 60 minutes and, you know, have exited startups and do all the different be a keynote speaker and do TED Talks and do all the things that I've done. That really was a kind of culmination of many years of work. And I had always used speaking as a tool or a mechanism for the other thing that I was doing with it, right? Like <clears throat> uh, running a company or persuading people on an idea or, or an industry or whatever the case may be. And over time, I realized, oh, a lot of work went into it. So it's not just like, you know, the, the whatever uh, inherent love that I had. And over time, what I realized was many of the things that people were taught or I was taught to on how to be an effective communicator just stopped working in an era of smartphones and perpetual, consistent, relentless distraction by you know every company and idea under the sun. Yeah. And as a result of that, I you know it really it really started to get under my skin. I was like this this like I just flew in and boy are my arms tired. You know, nineteen fifties Dale Carnegie thing. This isn't working anymore. Uh, people have tuned it out, and they're wise to it or whatever. So we need a different approach. And 
So several years ago, probably like five years ago, I started really putting together the ideas that would eventually become the AHA method, you know, the book that I that I wrote. Right. And just to clarify for everybody, writing about communication isn't your main thing. This other stuff called gamification and be able to design and running a company is your main thing or was. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But it is it is something it is something that I feel like if everybody was better at communicating business leaders, certainly first and foremost, but even, you know, aspiring professionals, people trying to move up in their careers, no skill set is more valuable to the advancement of your career than the ability to communicate in person. And so people, so so I just felt like it was super important and the time had come for me to, you know, kind of shift my attention and share what I know and share what I've learned about how to be persuasive in this setting. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I'm going to make a strong statement. I think everything, I mean, I say this on my website, everything that happens in business happens ultimately in a conversation. And we are constantly yeah. persuading people of one thing or another. And communication is your most powerful tool for persuasion. Um, bribes don't seem yeah. to work very well. Or various other, I'm joking about that. I don't literally mean that. Well, I mean, and the other thing too, I, I'm increasingly saying to people because I think it's the anxiety button of our age, no matter what AI takes away from you or no matter what role or function computers end up taking, machines end up taking in our lives, the one thing they will never be, no matter what they are or how they manifest, they will never actually be you. And as they evolve and you know take over more parts of the economy, there will be a greater and greater premium placed on those individual connections and time that you spend with people. They won't become less important. They're going to become more important. And that, as that time shortens, the importance of being good at communicating during those short periods of time uh, only grows. So in every way, being the best, most uh, eloquent version of yourself, the most effective version of yourself only becomes more important as time goes on. Okay. We could talk about this one for forever because I, I agree uh-huh. with you. It's an essential skill. All right. But I want to dig into something you said that I think is really fascinating. You say that everything we've been taught about communication is wrong. So the Dale Carnegie yep. method, the old method of here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you now. Here's what I told you. You say is done. So why? what's wrong with that? And why is that? Well, I think there's a few different factors at work. So I think probably the biggest factor, um, you know, which referencing is kind of also the way we were taught to do essays. I think both essays and speeches, we were taught to do kind of the same thing, which is lay out your hypothesis, lay out your points, then reiterate, you know, your your points and your hypothesis. And what's happened is that storytelling has become the dominant mode of communication. And that storytelling framework is very different, right? Storytelling traditionally has an act one, act two, act three framework instead of a hypothesis points reiteration framework. And what that means is that uh, uh, in storytelling, we start by setting up the central tension. Then we go on a journey to resolve the tension. And then we have the uh, post journey resolution. That's how stories are structured, which is right. obviously very different from the other way. Well, storytelling has just become the far and away the dominant form of communication. Every TikTok, every Instagram reel, every video on YouTube increasingly has shifted to more of a storytelling structure. And the efficiency of people, the creativity of storytelling has gotten so profound that whole stories are told in a minute 
uh, that millions and millions and millions of people will watch. And by the way, asterisk for those of us who are old enough to have watched broadcast television, this is in fact the great art form of commercial creators as well. They're able to do that in 30 seconds, right? Um, but the bottom line is this is shift to storytelling models. And if in a storytelling world, you do a hypothesis statement, people tend to tune you out because they believe that you have given them the resolution to the story in that first sentence. The resolution to the story is, um, this is how this thing works. And, uh, and then they just say, oh, okay, I got this central information from this whole thing right up, right up front. And as a result, I no longer need to pay attention to what you were saying. By the way, you can see that having been played out in the way the COVID pandemic medical advice was handled by people. The researchers would come out, the scientists would come out, and they would say, um, you know, they would make a pronouncement or they'd make a statement about what they knew about COVID. And then everybody would stop listening to them, give you the nuance about the statement that they had just made, which you actually needed. The nuance was more important than the statement. The nuance was actually the meat of the story, and it needed to be brought up to the front. So summary, you've got to make a, you've got to open with something that hooks people you have to take them on a little journey. You've got to give them the resolution closer to the end. And along the way, you've got to give them some moments of emotional excitement, you know, peaks and valleys, something to really hook into uh, because that's what they're expecting. So everything else just falls flat in this environment. It's very interesting. I believe from my original research and from a lot of others that we remember stories. So if you want, I've always believed if you want somebody to remember something, tell them the story. They will remember the story. They won't remember the conclusion or they'll derive the conclusion right. from the story. I can't tell you right. how many times I have given a talk over my entire career from teaching MBAs all the way through everything I do now. And people will come up with to me five, 10 years later and say, Wanda, I remember that story you told. Sure. And even if they yeah. don't get the story right, they got the principle of the story Correct. And I think people are deriving the principle from the story, but the memory mechanism is the story. And if right. you add that to what you've said, I think that's part of why storytelling has become so powerful. One, it's engaging. Two, it's emotional. And three, it's memorable. Yeah. And and by the way, speakers, compelling speakers, you and I, everybody, you know, everybody else, compelling speakers have always used storytelling in this way. But we have held out this, what I think has now become effectively false idea that there is a kind of communication that's serious and a kind of communication that's not serious and that right. storytelling is not serious and that's for uh you know sitcoms and that's that's where we do storytelling but when we're doing something serious we do it in the more you know uh right. socratic form key point key right? point key point yeah. conclusion. that's wrong it's just if yeah. you want to persuade and you want to engage people that's like just false that's wrong okay all right. So I don't want to put you on the spot and you can decline if you say, no, I can't do this. But on the spot, can you give me a mm -hmm. one minute story that has this arc to it? Oh, my gosh. Yes. And it's about public speaking. OK. Oof, I've always, this is one of my favorites. OK. So I it's COVID. And during COVID, public speakers, basically, we stopped working. It was just a thing that stopped happening for obvious reasons. And so, you know, any opportunity to speak live once we were comfortable with the contours of the pandemic, I, I was very inclined to take, you know, just generally. And I got an invitation to do a keynote in an event in Mexico City, which happens to be one of my favorite places 
in 2021, I was well vaccinated. I already had COVID. And I, I was like, okay, you know, just jonesing to do this event and was excited to do it. And so they, they fly me down. I go to Mexico City. I'm so excited. It's great, you know. And day of my keynote comes. This event is, you know, um, uh, this event is the first event back after you know, COVID restrictions are eased. And so it's, it's just thrumming. And they have taken over an entire trade show floor has been partitioned and I'm in the keynote area and one o'clock comes around, but everything's on the same room, a giant room with all the food and exhibits and everything. So I'm in the, um, I go over to do my keynotes one o'clock in the afternoon. I get up on stage. The audience is a packed audience. They're wearing headphones to listen to simultaneous translation. If they need the English trans, uh, Spanish translation, everybody's sitting there. I start talking at one Oh four an 18 piece mariachi band fires up about a hundred feet away from me. They're in the food area, theoretically a separate area, but all in the same room. And if you've ever been in a room with a mariachi band, a four-piece mariachi band, let alone an 18-piece mariachi band, that is loud. And they just start going. And I am speaking. And there is no way that people cannot tell that this mariachi band is playing. And I I can, you know, I can't ignore it. It's actually happening. And I keep going, you know, it's just like you gotta keep going, right? They tell you, keep going, keep going. And I'm going and I'm noticing that the audience is noticing it. People are taking off their headphones to listen to to figure out what they're hearing, right, in the background. And so there's this voice in my head that's like panicking now. Oh my God, the mariachi is gonna how long is this gonna go on for? They're gonna ruin my speech, right? And I'm, you know, just going over here. And I have this moment of you know, this moment of like extreme calm kind of comes over me. And I'm like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I got this. And I started dancing on the stage. I can continue to do my speech, but now I'm kind of like dancing to the rhythm of the mariachi. And as soon as I reached the like kind of logical stopping point, just like a little pause in the speech, I, I made a joke where I was like, and if you want to hear me sing, I'm a really terrible singer, but if you'd stick around till the end, I'll sing my best version of these songs. The audience laughs everybody knows we all acknowledge and accept that we are in the middle of this crazy scenario i don't call attention to it um i don't uh you know express my frustration or disappointment with it i just say we're all in this together this is so funny that was a funny moment and if we move on and the speech goes on and is um and it's a big hit um for me i the 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 core denouement of this entire story of course is as much as you think well, I'd want to, I can't go to the organizers afterwards and say, um, hey, I can't believe you put that mariachi on at one o'clock. You know, they've got their own whole thing going on. It's not the way that we do it. But the best part about it was I came off the stage expecting some kind of thing. And the the organizers was like, wow, that was a really good talk. I'm really, really glad that you came. I think everybody's really into it. Not a word about this insane thing that had just happened. Like it just didn't even happen. And uh and I was like, uh, I love Mexico and I love my job. <laughs> awesome. What a great story. And at the yeah. end of the day, it says you can't ignore stuff that's going on that your audience is experiencing, but you don't have to wave a flag around it either. Yeah. And and I think uh and I think at the at the core of that, so exactly, like this is a weird situation because you are told in live performance that you just, you know, the show must go on and you keep right. going. But if the interruption is so large that it it's not ignorable, you can't per se ignore it. You've got to kind of work it in to what it is that you're doing. Yeah. And and that's extra hard to do if you don't know your material. So the other lesson for everybody is you've got to know your material. You have to know your material so well that no matter what happens, you can pick up 
and keep doing your material because you know your material. That's right. the key part. Right. I agree with that one. All right. So if that was a great story and that does do the hook, the journey, the, you know, tension, moment of tension, the journey, and then a resolution. If we go back, just to illustrate a point, if we go back to the old way of storytelling, back to hypothesis, yeah. key points and reiteration, I would say, look, the important part is to understand where your audience is and respond to your audience in real time. That's the point of my message today. And let me give you example number one and example number two and example number three. And therefore, there's a conclusion. And by the way, you need to know your material in order to do that. Everybody would right. be asleep after sentence one. Right. And it's such a fun story. Otherwise, so it's a shame not to it's a shame right. not to tell right. it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So in effect, what you're saying needs to change is that we need to abandon our old way and adopt the storytelling framework which is a bit of tension, a problem, a journey of, you know, weight of resolution and a conclusion on resolution. Is that, you know, and in a three-part act, a one, two, three-part act? Yeah, that's one piece of it. But I think okay. the other piece of it is, um, which is referenced, so the book is called The AHA Method. And yes. the name actually kind of points to what the other, the the big, my big AHA moment in writing the aha method, which is that I think there's these moments of emotional arousal in a, you know, in a given speech, let's say, or, or persuasive communication, those moments of emotional arousal are the most important pieces of the story. They're the moment where the audience is like hair is standing up on the back of their neck and everybody's just like enraptured with what the speaker is trying to say. And, um, those moments are, so very important and what speakers often tend to do is they either don't explicitly craft for those moments so they don't think about that moment as a separate thing that they have to craft for um number one number two uh, they uh, put too many of them in so they think if i've got one good thing that you need to walk away with one aha moment well wouldn't you prefer to have 13 aha moments in this 20 minutes and so i'm going to give you all the things i know Um, and don't allow people don't allow enough breathing room for those things to be kind of absorbed. And, um, you know, lastly, I think, um, the, the core piece that ties back to what we were talking about before is people's short attention span and, and distraction. The fact that people are multitasking, like in a conference, it's sort of expected that people are behind their laptops. And if you're doing a zoom call, everyone is literally behind their laptop people. I mean, people are distracted and they're doing other things. In a distracted environment, we can't expect the audience anymore in this environment. We can't expect the audience to give us 100% of their attention for the full duration of our conversation. That's just not going to happen. So what we need to do is learn techniques that bring people back, bring their attention back, and bring their focus back to us so that if they've drifted away and they're doing something else, they're able to bring their attention back and get the critical, important information out of the talk in a 20 or 30 minute talk, I've got lots of cool things I can say, but there's actually really only two points in there that you might remember if I do my job perfectly well, chef's kiss, perfect talk. I'm leaving you with two things that you probably will remember maybe three. So the rest of the talk, it's not filler, but the rest of the talk is there to help make those two or three. Support those two. All right. Um, I don't like the fact that audiences have a divided attention span. I don't like it at all. Sure. I don't like it as a coach. Sure. I don't like it as a trainer. I don't like it as a presenter. I don't like it as a podcaster, but uh, it happens. Yeah. Yep. Um, it even happens with my guests sometimes on the podcast. Um, oh, yeah. 
but I, I do accept that as a reality. When you say bring attention back, what kind of things bring attention back? So I did it in the previous segment, if anybody is listening and wants to back up, which is that I changed my tone and volume and the pace at which I was speaking, which had suddenly changed. So if you were off doing something else, you might notice that I am attempting to get you to come back. So even in a, first things first, in a subtle way, changing up tone, volume, speed uh, for people who are doing something else. And, you know, incidentally, since you brought up podcasts, one of my absolute favorite mediums, I love a podcast. We all know that many people listening to a podcast are simultaneously like driving. For example, the most innocuous thing you might be doing is driving while listening to a podcast. Well, that does require some of your brain power. And there are moments where you're tuned out because you're, and correctly so, you should be driving. Right. right? Uh, and we hope that you are uh, not not distracted enough by the beautiful things that Wanda and I have to say. Okay. But um, you need to be able to kind of bring sort of people back. So one thing that we use is, is tone, speed, uh, volume. Um, another sort of technique and another crucial technique here is space. So leaving a little bit of dead air around the thing that you're going to say allows people to also say, wait a minute, now there's not talking. And that also brings the brain back to focus. Like, why is it stop talking? Did something go wrong? Um, so a little bit of quiet can help bring people back into focus. And um, and that's doubly true for the processing phase that happens afterwards. So really crucially, um, when I say something that's really important or meaningful, you need some time after I've said it to process, understand um, even just to transcribe it to short-term memory correctly, your brain does need a few seconds, you know, um, to take that information and and transcribe it for later processing. And if you've said something really profound, you need to give more time for people to absorb and digest and do all that kind of stuff. What we what we cannot do, what we must not do, is crowd the important detail. The aha moment should not be crowded with something that's also important. Okay, it needs to be followed by something that's just not that important, to be honest. Okay. So you have a little bit of so time to process. Time to fill there. All right. Yep. So I'm going to repeat again. We have a story framework, which is in three yep. acts, act one, act two, act three, involving yep. what's the tension, what's the crisis, what's the journey we're going to go on, and what's a resolution of that one. I don't want to give the key point away at the beginning. I want to bring people through the journey. And I need to have aha moments along the way, at least to two in a 30-minute kind of conversation. And for yep. those, I need to have a way of bringing people's attention back to those moments. So yep. vary my pace, vary my volume, vary my expression if it's physical and people are watching you and create a little bit of space after those aha moments so that people can process it, can remember it. Yeah, okay? that's right. All right. Now, we've been talking about this as if you're giving a speech. But do this for me. Suppose I'm talking to my boss about why I'm the right person yeah, to lead great. an effort. Is great. The so this, yeah, kind of the same thing sort of applies, right? I think um, this was a difficult thing when framing the book and talking about the book, because I think, um, you know, when most people think about communication skills, they tend to think about the talk. And often, I don't know if this is your experience when you coach Wanda, but my experience is like, most people who ask me to coach them, and I, I don't like coaching everybody, so I, I really don't do the vast majority of people who ask me for coaching. Um, and I usually qualify them by telling them that they're going to have to do the talk 
uh, between 18 and 25 times before before getting up on stage. And that usually beats out like all the people I don't want to work with. Um, but, but anyway, just, it's, it's a kind of, um, intellectual activity for me. So, uh, so, you know, when, uh, we're coaching people and we're sort of talking about it with people, I think the, you know, one of the crucial things that I feel is important is that talks or speeches are often a catalyst for people to go work on their communication skills. And that's like in a panic, I've been booked to do this talk. I need to do this talk, right? That's usually what triggers it. But actually in small ways, every single day as a professional, you're high, you're giving a talk, um, whether that's, you know, a hallway conversation or just talking to your boss. And so similar rules apply there, which is, you know, I think it's important to be direct, but I think it's also important to make sure that you know what your hooks are and ensure that you're delivering those hooks or those aha moments in the in your conversations with people at the right moment and not, um, you know, and, and we say when we're pitching for money that, uh, with startups that, um, the most important thing to do in a pitch is to avoid the speaker, the audience getting to know in their head before the point that you want, before the point that they've understood your true brilliance. Okay. So a classic example of this error that maybe will illustrate all this is let's say you're pitching a bunch of venture capitalists and your business idea is that you want to, um, come up with a short-term loan program. It's like a, like a, a short-term financing loan for people who are late on their payments one month. Okay. That's your business idea. So you get up in front of venture capitalists and you open with, um, how often have you found yourself in this situation? Uh, the end of the month has arrived and you are a few dollars short and you can't make your payments on your, on your mortgage. Right. Okay. Now that's a great pitch for the broad consumer, but in a room full of venture capitalists, the answer is no, like nobody has that problem in that room, generally speaking. So if you frame the talk through the prism of no, immediately asking questions that are going to get a no misunderstanding who your audience is, then everything after that is going to be struggle bus. So what we want to do is make sure that even in those kind of persuasive conversations, we avoid getting to know at the very beginning. And the best way to do that is to have a story or hook that brings people along in the conversation. Yeah. You know, so, right. So even if I'm pitching, let's say I'm pitching my boss for a raise, why I should get a raise or why I should get a promotion. The conversation should really be like, so, you know, or some, something to the effect of like, tell the story of something this year that happened this year that's emblematic of the reason why you are the person deserving of this, rather than just coming out and saying, I want this race. Right. 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 You remember in June when... Yeah, I love when people come at the same idea from very different points of view, and I'm going to do this one right now. Sandy Pentland who's been studying a ton of stuff from MIT for ages and watching people's body languages, their movements. He actually puts a device on them and has them wear it. And he talks about these four patterns that are uniform across human beings and across animals for that matter. And he says, I can predict with a high degree of accuracy success in a salary negotiation without ever hearing a word that was said by just looking at these patterns of behavior. And one of them is this sense of mimicry, 
like we're on the same page. So our, you know, we're mm-hmm. nodding, we're both nodding, we're shaking our heads. Mm-hmm. And your opening story of getting people to say to to follow along with you and not saying no at the beginning is exactly that. Okay. Right. And then you have to yeah. establish your expertise, your skill in saying, for example, in this conversation, and I'm the one who can do this because it might be your final piece of your pitch for why you're the right person to lead it. So you see it from practical experience. Sandy sees it from research. Same idea about the importance of this. Yeah. And I would also say back to the uh, being in, you know, knowing your material. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the only material you need to study is yourself. It's not the material of it's, it's metacognitive rather than being a specific speech material, right? Um, so that knowing yourself, knowing your material, knowing what you're working with, it gives you the freedom and flexibility to be in flow. And when you're in flow, which I'm sure many of your listeners know, but it's a concept more or less where you're in sync with the activity and you kind of lose track of space and time and you're just like in the zone. Um, it's a great book if you're, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, but when you're in a state of flow, um, you just, if you listen and you pay attention, you just like know things mm-hmm. that are not necessarily, you know, clearly cognitive. Like I, I was pitching somebody for money the other day. We had a nice, um, went a nice dinner, some friends of mine. And I just, I knew, I knew, I was like, they're not going to be interested in investing in, you know, funding this project that I'm, I'm working on. I just knew it wasn't going to happen. And it wasn't me being negative about it. It was just knowing the, um, you know, the energy and the vibe of everything that was, that was going on and, and feeling that kind of back and forth that they were closed off and not open to it. Right. Um, so, so I think that's, you know, so I think that's also critical. It's like knowing yourself, knowing your material, being comfortable enough that you can improvise and go wherever the conversation is taking you. It doesn't mean being literally on script. That, right. that is how right. most people interpret that, what I just said, but you don't right. want to be on script. You want to just know your material. So I have to ask about the conversation with friends. Did you pivot and yeah. just go to a different topic? Did you bring them back around in another way? Did you have a trick there that, you know, won the day or, or what? Yeah. So the trick, I think the trick, whenever you're in a, in a kind of negotiation situation or kind of pitch situation that isn't going your way, the pivot is to offer something instead. Okay. So instead of asking, offering, and let the conversation end with an offer of help for something else. So something that you know that they want or that they need or that they're uh, interested in, and you you actually end the conversation with it being by reshaping the power dynamics so they're trying to get something from you. Mm-hmm. So in the next conversation, they they're looking for something from you instead. Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean that they're you know, you're negotiating in that way, but it just like resets the whole thing, especially if, especially if you're in a conversation with someone who's um, anxious or hostile, like they're, they're anxious or nervous that you're going to ask for something like, like these friends knew I was coming to ask for something. Right. They got it. Right. And so they were on guard the whole time. It's a little bit like confronting your boss about a pay raise if they're not in the, in the setting where they, you know, where they're doing the annual review. Right. So in those sort of situations, you got to be conscious of that. I always remind people, if you're asking for a raise, you're asking your boss to do a lot more work 
to get it for you. Oh my God. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Manafort. Beyond and just don't money. underestimate that. Like I may think you deserved it, yeah. but I don't want to do that work. That's a different story. Yeah, exactly. I want to um, I want to take a break in a moment, but before I go there, I want to deal with one thing that I think is really important, and that is some people happen to think that they're just not skilled. They're not comfortable at public speaking. Mm-hmm. They think they're never going to be good at it. They're afraid of it. I mean, I hear more excuses than you can imagine, as I imagine you do. What's your advice for those people? Oh, you know, what I say is like right away, I say, um, okay, well, look, you may not um, want to do public speaking, but there's a lot of things that we don't want to do that are nonetheless needed to do be done or are useful for your career. And you may say, I never want to improve this. I don't want to invest in skill. And that's perfectly fine. But if you do think that there's a reason why you want to do this and a reason why you want to understand why you want to get better at it, and we've been persuasive enough to get you to consider this as a skill you'd like to add to your, your repertoire, then what I would tell you is the goal of uh, uh, speech, but certainly from a coaching standpoint, the number one goal, and I talk about this in, in the book, The Aha Method, I'm not trying to make you, I don't want you to be somebody that you're not. Mm-hmm. I want you to be the best version of yourself. So if you like yourself enough to believe that you are worthy of sharing what you know or a perspective or getting what you deserve or getting what you want in life, then uh, there's no downside to taking that core essence of who you are, staying within the framework of that person and polishing that diamond up real nice so you can just be a better version of yourself for other people. And asterisk, I'm almost 100% convinced that you have something important to share with the world that it's not going to take long when we sit down and talk before we get to some essential experience understanding insight perspective brain lens that you are carrying with you that actually would be meaningful and important even if it's you know industry specific so whatever whatever that might be why wouldn't you want to share that with other people and why wouldn't you want to um you know be more effective at your life if you don't have to change who you are. Okay. Pretty good pitch. I like that one. I think the important part about this one for everybody though, is wherever you are, whoever you are, however you are, whatever is naturally you, you can get better at this. And I'm also going to say those of us who speak for a living and happen to be pretty, do a lot of it without a lot of prep can get a lot better too. It's a practice. It's like a muscle that I think everybody's got to work on. For sure. Okay. All right. Perfect place to take a break. My um, guest today is Gabe Zickerman. The book we're talking about, The AHA Method, Communicating Powerfully in a Time of Distraction. And you can find Gabe at gabezickerman.com. We'll put that in all the post show notes so you can certainly see all the details and how to spell it. When we come back, I want to dig a little more deeply into some of Gabe's process for actually developing this Um, And then I want to talk about biases and how you handle an audience with biases. We'll be right back. (music) 
Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Gabe Zickerman, and you can find more about Gabe at his website, Gabe, G-A-B-E, Zickerman, Z-I-C-H-E-R-M-A-N-N.com. The book we're talking about is The AHA Method. Now, if I try to summarize the several aha moments in this last segment, they're going to be a little difficult, but let me hit a few points. One is the old methodology of stating your hypothesis or your key point, followed by three illustrations of why that fact is true, followed by a summary conclusion where you reiterate your main point just doesn't work anymore. And the argument is because when you have given the statement of what you believe at the very beginning, your key point, people then just tune out because they know the conclusion. We are wired. We're much more attuned to. We're much more attentive to stories. So when you follow the arc of a story in three acts, you're going to get more attention. And the three acts are things that start with what's the big crisis that needs to be resolved? What's the journey and discovery? And then what's the resolution about? And in each of those, I need an aha moment. Aha moment means something that gets emotional arousal, something that draws people's attention in and they go, or they're, it's almost like you feel like they're leaning closer to you going, okay, and, and, and to those pieces that draw people's attention back to you. 
Now, some tricks on how to do that. We've already talked about those. So ways to apply that outside just speech making, whether it's asking for venture capital funds or whether it's asking your boss for a raise or whether it's asking for a particular assignment or whether it's just trying to pitch an idea that you have. Storytelling is the name of the game in a distracted world. And for sure, we're all distracted. Okay, Gabe, one of the key points that you make that I think is just so, so, so important, I want to pick up on before we talk about biases. You say, everybody is always selling something. Explain that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, if, you, if you've if you seen the movie Glengarry, Glenn Ross, everybody, it's like uh, there's this adage in the movie, always be closing, okay? And that's basically, a, you know, salespeople in a boiler room setting, should always be closing in every conversation. And I think persuasive speaking, so when many people hear the word persuasion, that's what they think about. They think about something where they're trying to close a deal all the time. And I actually think the most important thing about understanding persuasion really well is to understand that it's not actually about closing anything. It's about coming to interactions with other people with a fundamental idea of what it is that you would like to get out of this conversation or these interactions and creating uh, a space where what you would like to get and what the other person would like to get can come into alignment with each other. So it's creating space, understanding yourself, understanding your goals, creating space for that, creating space for the other person to come and have that kind of exchange uh, and, and change minds and change opinions. Even if you're having a simple water cooler conversation with a colleague about something innocuous and you don't think you're actually trying to persuade them of anything. You're not really like in that conversation attempting to get somebody to do something for you or, or, or believe in something. That's nonetheless an opportunity to persuade that person that you are kind or credible or, or uh, consistent or you know, a, a good person, whatever it is that you would like to um, convey. And so crucially, you know, any, any interaction with anybody is an opportunity to persuade, even if you're just trying to persuade them that you're a good person at the core. Right. You see this when you look at the negative examples where people weren't paying attention to the impression they left or to the image they left or the message that they unintentionally conveyed. Like somebody's in a really bad mood, they're walking to the elevator, they get on the elevator and they're just grumpy in the elevator. Yeah. People remember that stuff. You know, five years later, they're saying, Oh, I'm not sure I want to work with that person. Oh. So if you think sure. about it in that, you'll see that every single opportunity is a piece of how people are willing to interact with you. It's a piece of your persuasion of you are worth following in some ways, to put in my language. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not, and again, that's different from selling. Now, persuasion is part of selling. So you, ca you can't really sell without being persuasive, but you can be persuasive without overtly selling. The crucial part is, it, it begins with just this idea that you also, by the way, um, you know, it, it's back to what we were talking about before the break. Do you have something of value to give other people? Are you, are you in the world to give something to people to be someone who has something to share an insight, uh, a value, a shoulder, um, you know, your effort, your time. If you fundamentally believe that, then, you know, that is the platform upon which you persuade others, which is your gift of service through that prism, not your, you know, you taking 
but rather the thing that you're giving is the core essence of, of persuasion. It's also the essence of confidence and this essence yep. of followership and this essence of relationships and trust. And so thinking about what you have to give others, what your value is to give to others, hugely important. All right. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this notion of biases. All right. So, you know, okay. do, the com- common vernacular is we all have these biases. I like to use the original research, which is called cognitive biases. Our brains yep. are wired to think in particular shortcut ways. And those become a problem in communication. One of the things I think is really fascinating in your book is you tackle some of these. There are hundreds of them, but you tackle a couple of them and talk about how they work in communication. So let's just pick a couple, three of your favorites. Sure. Yeah. And I I, I think I devoted an entire chapter to cognitive biases in the book because I'm fascinated by them. And I think they're both... Um, they're both positive lessons and negative lessons. And mm-hmm. as somebody who's, you know, trying to do persuasive communication or be a speaker, you know, understanding how to use these in a, a positive way to convey your message, but also understanding what the audience is bringing to the table that might be interfering with their understanding of what you're trying to say. So in both ways, cognitive biases, very, very important to understand, um, you know, through the, through persuasion. So one of my favorite ones is, um, uh, the framing effect. Yes. I love this one because it's all around us all the time. Um, it's also in in price theory and in marketing oft, often also called anchoring. Um, mm-hmm. So they're kind of similar. They're they're related and similar sort of biases. Okay. So um, when I tell you that uh, when I say a statement like you know only about one percent of Americans might die of COVID over a twenty year time frame. Well. When you put it that way, when you put it as 1% of Americans might have COVID, it doesn't sound like that big of a number. It seems like relatively small. You probably think like, oh, the number of people who die in car crashes is higher than that. If I say three and a half million Americans might die of COVID, you might have a different reaction to that number. Those are both the same number. They're just expressed really differently. Or that famous, uh, the famous case study uh, 1970s case study, Burger King attempting to compete with McDonald's quarter pounder releases a product that was a third pounder burger, but it underperformed. And in market research, people thought that a third pound was smaller than a quarter pound because the denominator number uh, three is a smaller number than four. That's a That would be a blindside for an intelligent, educated person because you would say, well, you should know that a third is bigger than a quarter. But if you then set yourself in the context of where that information is being presented, quickly people are quickly scanning these numbers and it might look like a smaller number. Yeah. Just because of how people think about numbers. So when you're presenting information, particularly data, you do have the choice of how to present that data. And you can, in fact, um, you know, um, massage the data, you know, in your, in your way in the, in the presentation, you know, kind of based on that frame. Right. And by massage, I think you don't mean, uh, manipulate the data negatively. It's just thinking about which way am I presenting it? Am I correct about yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I think there's also like, I think there's also like an element here and I used COVID specifically. I used the COVID data specifically because 
no matter where the where you are, listener, right now in your political viewpoints on what happened, um, you 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 might have a perspective on whether or not you know the different interventions related to COVID were were useful or not useful. And you prob but you've probably noticed in every discussion about this between people that the same numbers are being understood in two different ways by people based on the frame that they're coming to it. The numbers are facts. The interpretation of the numbers are different. And part of the reason for that different interpretation is the framing effect, because the person is coming into that number understanding with a different frame of reference for what that number might mean. Right. 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 So that's, it's crucial, especially when talking about numbers, it's incredibly important to understand that. And anchoring is the anchoring is the corollary, which is once I present you with the first number, all other numbers tend to be compared against that first offer or number that I gave you. So yeah. if I tell you that the estimate is going to be $1 million and then I come back to you and I say, or you can, or I've got something that's going to cost $750,000, you'll be like, well, I'll take the cheaper one. That's a great deal. Right. And it's a great deal because I started by saying, well, there's this million dollar thing, or I can do it for seven fifty. But if I started by saying there's a five hundred thousand dollar thing, or I can do it for seven fifty, then the seven fifty right. seems less appealing. Right, right, absolutely. Well, and we see that one all the time. Let's talk about a different one. Um, sure. This notion yeah. of well, I I'll let me just label it as a clustering bias, and I'll let you mm -hmm. kind of explain and take it from there. Yeah, so I think the the clustering illusion or the clustering bias, you know, is this idea that um, people see patterns in sets of data that may or may not actually exist because certain data items might be kind of clustered together. There are things that might um, actually find uh, find themselves kind of in uh, in the sort of same area, um, and then people get sort of distracted by them, right? And think that that's, mm -hmm. um, that therefore there must be a pattern because right. certain things are kind of clustering together. And sometimes that clustering happens for people um, like it also connects to other kind of availability heuristic. Mm -hmm. If I see um, this unusual example in recent times, but if I see two car accidents happen in a short period of time, I might be inclined to believe that car accidents are on the rise yeah. because I didn't see a bunch, any car accidents. All of a sudden I see two car accidents. Now car accidents are a thing, right? Or these um, smash and grab um, retail thefts that have made the news uh, a bunch lately, right? Is the data there that they're on the rise or is it just because people are taking videos and you're right. You're seeing a bunch of them. Right. So therefore there must be a pattern and things are happening, right? So when presenting uh, that kind of data to people, you know, you you might want to call out, like I just did with the smashing graph, you might want to call out the clustering effect and point to it and actually say, hey, there's this thing that there's this data set, but we might be biased here because we're not clear if there's actually a pattern. So often that's, it's, it's used in a um, kind of de-escalatory um, way. Yeah. I see this happening in companies when someone says, oh, I saw X, that's counter to your point of view, and somebody else says, me too. And suddenly mm -hmm. you have everybody saying, oh, there's the pattern, 
that must be a problem when it's just really one person saying, I saw X and everybody else glomming onto it. So calling it out in advance of that getting set is a way of tackling it. Okay. Yeah, that's an example. That's definitely an example where you want to call out the bias. Um, typically, and, and incidentally, for just for like all kinds of communications around data, as you've noticed, we've chosen two that are data related. Mm-hmm. They're not always, you know, these, these biases are not always about data, right? Um, you know, one thing that speakers often take advantage of is a thing called the halo effect, which says that if I believe, if, if I believe in your positive attributes in one way, then I'm more inclined to believe in the positive attributes in other ways as well. Right. So one thing that speakers do, and this is an important uh, technique for aspiring speakers, by virtue of the fact that you have been chosen by the organizer, by, by dint of the fact that you have a spot on that po- on that stage, you are taking advantage of the halo effect of the event as a speaker. So many times when I work with, with new speakers, for example, one of, one of my coaching clients is now a shark on shark tank. And at the very beginning, I remember that he was like, uh, he was like, Oh, um, I'm not credible. He was perfectly credible. Okay. To, to do what he wanted to do. But he's like, I'm not a credible person in this, in this domain. I can't credibly speak about this. And I was like, just by virtue of the fact that you're on the stage and given a spot, people are going to give you the basic benefit of the doubt, right? Right. That you right. can that you can talk about something. And that can work in the reverse effect. direction. But let's we're gonna to have to stop 100%. there, unfortunately, because it can go Sorry. the opposite. It's quite it's called the horn effect. You sure. know, if I decide that this sure. event is not a good one, then you or two yep. are not gonna be a good one because of the virtue yep. that you're gonna be there. There are so many of these, and Gabe, I think you just did a lovely job of calling out what they were and some potential clues about how to handle it. Um, Gabe, sadly, we are out of time. I think we keep talking for another no. without any problem at all. What a fascinating <laughs> book. Thanks. My guest today, Gabe Zuckerman, the book, The AHA Method, Communicating Powerfully in a Time of Distraction. I just think the model that you're talking about, the way we need to change our thinking for today's attention span, rather than railing against the attention span, it's there, let's deal with it, let's embrace it. Storytelling is the way to go, so therefore we've got to adopt the frame of storytelling rather than what we learned in school all along. So what... Uh, what a wonderful and a dozen aha moments along the way too so thank you gabe much appreciated thank you thank you so if, much if you've enjoyed today's podcast please like us on your favorite podcast provider leave a comment we'd love to hear from you and if you want to know more check out our subscription at out of the comfort we'll see you next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone thank you for joining us today Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.